If you want to support the Missing Witches Project, find out how at missingwitches.com and pre-order New Moon Magic, 13 Anti-Capitalist Tools for Resistance and Reenchantment by Risa Dickens and Amy Torrett. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Welcome, listeners. Welcome, witches. Uh, welcome painters and bosom buddies, <laughs> artists and word witches, my late blooming lilacs and the blue jay that is picking the butterflies out of the lilacs and eating them on my lawn, breaking my heart and delighting me at the same time. Welcome to all of our conflicted and messy feelings and also to that feeling that I hope you know of the moment when you recognize a friend who walks into a room and you have the sheer delight of a magical <laughs> friendship. And welcome especially to author Claire McMillan. Welcome oh. home to the Missing Witches podcast. It's so exciting to see your face after just being so in love with your book in these spring days. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just thrilled to be here. As I was saying, I'm a fan of the podcast to begin with. So um, it's a real treat to talk to you. <laughs> it's wild. It's wild that anyone ever listens, you know? <laughs> 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 or reads your books. So, reads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, it was such a pleasure to get your email and to go tumbling down the rabbit holes of some of the creative worlds that you've been in. Um, I like I spent this morning for a while just reading about Edith Wharton because <laughs> I read in uh, your bio that you're a trustee on the home that she designed. Yes, which is, correct. You know, a detour. But I just got so excited about the different creative worlds of women that you have been involved in in writing your novels. Yeah, I mean, uh, Edith was kind of my she is my favorite writer. And um, yeah, I spent some time at the Mount in residency. They have a, a writers in residence program. And um, yeah, you know, she wrote ghost stories. And uh, the thing with her house is that uh, there are ghost dogs. So when I was writing in the house, when it would start to become evening, I'd be crossing my fingers like, am I going to hear the ghost dogs today? I hope so. But um, I never did. But Edith is another kind of guiding spirit for me in the same way Remedia Sparrow is. And, you know, I tend to find these women with these voices through history, through time, you know, who really speak to me. And then I go down a rabbit hole and become, you know, really obsessed with them. And so Edith was for sure uh, one for me and and then, you know, Remedios too. Can you talk to me about how you discovered Remedios Sparrow? Yeah, so I saw uh, the first painting I ever saw of hers was called The Call. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be so cheesy, but I have a I have a repro of it right here. Let's so look at show it. it to you. <laughs> All right. So I oh. saw this and I just wigged out and had to reverse Google image search it because I had to know kind of everything of it the original hangs in Washington DC in the National Museum for Women in the Arts but I just saw like a poster on a wall mm -hmm. and um so you know I google image searched her and 
started reading about her and found out that she was really um, inspired by the tarot, by witchcraft, by occultism, by esotericism. Um, and I, I had no idea that it would be a book. I just, again, same, similar to Edith Wharton, you know, I never intended to write a, a book inspired by her books. I never intended to write a book about Remedios, but I, I just started reading about her life and she had, um, she had a very uh, tumultuous life. And also to find out that she was inspired by, you know, really for me, the tarot, I had started studying tarot. I mean, studying is such a formalized word for what I was doing, but looking into the tarot, reading about it, taking classes on it, maybe 10 years before that. And again, with no idea that it would ever show up in my work or, or anything like that. I just thought, um, I was just using it for, for self-discovery and self-exploration. And um, so when I saw the call and I started reading about Remedios and then um, I realized kind of this other interest in the tarot, they, it all just kind of lined up. And uh, I thought, well, maybe this is a book. And, um, and that's, how, that's how, you know, the book came to be. Um, I want to talk more about how much I love the book. I just, um, well, first of all, like what a dreamy summer read. It's coming out soon. So like mm -hmm. officially, like I got an arc, which made me feel delicious. Um, <laughs> and I got to wrap myself around it. And I, I mean, I had read and written a little bit about Leonora and like fell in love with Remedios and wanted to know so much more. And mm -hmm. I was fascinated by the same part I mean, the whole story is fascinating, but that mm -hmm. moment in Mexico mm -hmm. City where they really mm -hmm. find each other and the magic and the complexities of creative friendship, right? Like, and you go mm -hmm. into not just the women's friendship, but Andre Breton and, and Benjamin and, you know, how they sort of sustained each other and, and then the loving relationships and how they can be full of love, but still such a weight um, mm -hmm. or, or the way that like someone's truth telling in a really close relationship can be painful or like can be like more revealing more more hard than we're ready for can you mm -hmm. talk a bit about do you have creative relationships in your life those moments where you like you recognized a, a kinship or just tell me more about that, that moment in Mexico and what it meant to you yeah I mean I think the thing I really loved about her life too that you're that you're mentioning is this create is this friendship she had with Leonora this incredible collaboration between two artists and you know you're mentioning we have all these stories of collaboration with between male artists like Breton and Paré or even I'm thinking visual visual artists like Picasso and Braque but you don't really have uh, many tales of artistic collaboration between women and the uh, the more I looked into their friendship and kind of read about it as I was doing research the more I realized like it really was kind of a mutual uplifting of each other there was not a lot of competition they never I had to put some little um maybe jagged points in their friendship because I needed conflict because I'm <laughs> I'm telling a story but they really didn't have a big falling out you know, they really, it was just really kind of a story of mutual uplifting throughout their lives. And I thought that's really so unique. And it's something I've felt in my own life 
um, yes, both creatively with friends who are writers, but also just generally, you know, those friendships, those women, female friendships you have that you're like, I think I might be dead if, if I didn't have this. I'm thinking like early motherhood, you know, those types of friendships are friendships you're blessed to have throughout your entire life with women. And so I really wanted to tell a story about that, you know, and it was a great um, vehicle for that. And the most interesting time in my life, in their life to me was Mexico City. And it actually, in writing the book, started it in Mexico City. But because she had lived through this tumultuous time during World War II, you know, she was in Paris when it fell. She fled to Marseille. She was living in this villa with all these artists so what what was happening is I'm telling the Mexico story but I have these huge flashbacks that are just like deadening the plot to a standstill so I realized I had to I actually had to shift and tell it chronologically so um so yeah I think like the first 80 pages or something were were still in Europe but then we get to Mexico which is where I kind of always wanted to to go and to be and you know, as far as I could research, they both had a lot of men in their lives always, you know, they had multiple husbands, they had lovers, they had men in their lives always. Um, but they were still very much kind of independent women making their art. And so that was another piece that I was interested in exploring is kind of how are you living in a patriarchy, or maybe living in a system because the surrealist view of women was quite um, reductionist living in a system but like that but you still love men you know and so I wanted to include that aspect as well so yeah can you talk more about um the kinds of love between men and women that you talk about in the story you know yeah I mean part one thing I was constantly trying to get into the book and it's not in the book because the book is a novel and it's fiction, it's not a biography, mm -hmm. but Remedios had a first husband that she married and then she had an affair with Benjamin and then she and Benjamin got married and she had another affair. She's having affairs and, and the men in her life, she remained lifelong friends with them always. There was never some dramatic falling out. There was never mm -hmm. some whatever. And in fact, um, her lover, Jean-Nicole, who she meets after she and Benjamin break up, she decides she can't really, he's such an all-encompassing kind of love that she realizes she really is almost has to choose. And she said this between herself and him in a way. And it's really fascinating to me that they go away into the Venezuelan jungle. And when she comes out, she really chooses herself. Like that is you know, kind of historical fact. And what was fascinating is then she remained friends with him her whole life. And her next lover slash husband, Walter Gurren, when when Jean-Nicole had horrible health issues and was in the hospital, had all these bills, they paid all his hospital bills. Yeah. You know, it's just, I know, it's just amazing. So she had this huge capacity, I think, to just let people really hold on to them. And I think in part that was because, you know, she was living this bohemian kind of uh, artistic life. She was interested in things maybe outside the realm of the conventional, including, you know, 
the occult or the esoteric. And then I also think because she was essentially, um, you know, a refugee who relocated from Europe to Mexico, they kind of created their own chosen family there. And mm. they didn't really, you didn't really cut people out of that um, lightly. So. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It seems also like there's something about the ability to like tell a complicated truth, at least in the way that you describe her in the, and Leonora in the story that like they can keep those relationships with men because they're honest about what's what they love about them and also where they need to go next, like who they are, like they somehow found a freedom to be really, yeah. you know, to be, to choose themselves and in being honest about choosing themselves, you know, it's, some people can't respect that, but a lot of good people probably could. Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, I kind of told the story with Jean Nicole, but before that with Benjamin, you know, Benjamin Prey was, almost 15 years older than she was mm. and um, very famous for being a poet and being a surrealist and everything. So at, at some point, yeah, you're exactly right. She did have to kind of like choose herself in a way to get out from just under the dynamics of that. And I think it was quite mutual. And again, you know, they remained friends and mm. he went back to France and she remained in Mexico, but the only time she ever went back to Paris was right before uh, Benjamin was dying to say to say goodbye to him and wow. to be there yeah yeah she has just like a huge capacity to hold people in her life I think and um, yeah that's super appealing you talk about the the tension or the alchemy involved <laughs> in navigating research and memoir and then transforming it into a story Mm -hmm. I mean, research is like the most fun part, right? Like you could <laughs> yeah. research forever and ever and ever. You know this, I'm sure, because so much research goes into your podcasts and your books. Like you could, I, I have a friend who writes um, nonfiction and I asked her, I said, so when do you know it's time to stop researching? Like, when do you know it's time to write? And she's like, when the money runs out, that's <laughs> when I start writing. And I was like, right. Um <laughs> But another another um, friend of mine who's a, who writes as well, historical fiction said, you know, she kind of researches until she has an idea of story uh, and until she can write a scene and then she'll go in and write the scene. And you're kind of always researching as you're writing because the, you know, a, a novel like this, the thing, the reason people are reading really is, I think, for that emotional truth of the character, for for the emotional journey they're going on and so you know that that's less uh reliant on on research you know that's an emotional thing inside yourself um but yeah research adds like the pretty set dressing and you know makes things believable and and there's also the structure of kind of her, the timeline of her life which you know was factual and I definitely like I said, I jettison things like the first husband's just gone or, you know, a lot right. of the lovers too. I just, I tried to write them. And then the book became about men and, mm -hmm. you know, and her relationship to men. And, and that's, that's fine. That's a great book. I just, it wasn't the book I wanted to write. I wanted to write really a book about, about her and centered on her art. And then also about her friendship 
Yeah, it's so, so interesting. We, we, you know, we've tried really hard in our work to find the like female researcher or find the women's story or find the like queer story. And, but it's constant work because you, it creeps in and it, mm-hmm. and it, the, you know, and it's not, it's not that those stories about men aren't worth telling. It's just, there's plenty of people doing it. <laughs> Let them do it, you know? But we've had moments with our editor in the book where they were like, we spend a lot of time in this section on like some, you know, big, important men. Do we need this here? Like what happens if we remove this whole section? Maybe we don't need Joseph Campbell at all. Who else is there, you know? And yeah, I think we've really benefited from people taking up that challenge with us and being like, can we do more? Can we go further? <laughs> I mean, poor unknown Joseph Campbell. Right. right? <laughs> if I only mean, someone would. <laughs> right. I mean, but yeah, that is, it actually, it's surprising. I think what you're saying too is it's surprising how much actual conscious focus it takes right. to, do, to do that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah exactly. Do you have, um, I don't know, um, a tarot practice, a divinatory practice, a meditation practice that is part of your writing practice, part of negotiating between like what happened and what you're creating? I mean, to answer that as I wish, (laughs) Um, not in, I don't really use tarot in connection with my writing. I think a couple times during the drafting in this book, I was like, well, I'm going to try, like, I'm going to be like, whatever media like do next, or, you know, I can't remember sure. what the exact kind of question I showed up to my deck with was, but it, I found it not helpful um, at all. I mean, I do, I have a, you know, I have a personal tarot practice right. um, that's super not ritualized or rigid or anything like that um and like you sit practice. sit down with it when you have a question or you sort of take out your cards in a like sort of playful way or what's that like totally I am yeah. I mean there are times you know I really find it useful as a grounder for me mm-hmm. you know and it's also super useful for me just when I'm spinning out in loops like we all spent totally kind of like jam a stick in there <laughs> um <laughs> the tarot will often jam a stick in there to just be like, you can look at it from this perspective. You can. So um, in that way, it's super useful, but you know, so sometimes I'll show up to my deck every day, a couple times a day, (laughs) but, and then sometimes it'll be like, go away. You know, uh, I've already, you know, go away. Like it'll start to get confusing. And sometimes. Oh, I know that feeling where it's like, you're asking (laughs) this to it. You've asked this question enough times. (laughs) Like you've asked this question enough, like go do something else now. Like, um, and then sometimes I won't touch my deck for a week or two, you know? Um, and again, like, uh, the way I read or my spreads are not super rigid. I mean, I do like, a Celtic cross, like if I'm feeling all formal or mm. maybe it's the solstice or, you know, someone's birthday or New Year's Eve or something like it's fun to do a full Celtic cross. But a lot of times I'm doing like a little three card, six card spread, kind of making it up, you know, as I go along. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, tarot practice has been 
and you know I had no idea that it would be so resonant for me um personally but I don't I don't really use it when I'm writing um although I know people do and I'm always a little uh intrigued and jealous of that because I was like oh you could like get you know a writing prompt or something out of the deck but but yeah but no, you went, you went to it for writing prompts and it was like, go back to work. <laughs> yeah. It was, I was just like, this is, I think not for my, not for my practice. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. I get that. Do you ever feel like you, you know, people talk about channeled work and you are dealing with historical figures. Do you mm. feel like there's moments in like your flow state of writing where you're like, oh, I had not thought that she would think in that way, but there she is thinking in that way or something. Yeah, sure. I mean, for sure, I do not think I was channeling Remedios Faro when I wrote this book, just to be clear. Um, but then, you know, I haven't looked into channeling, but in a way, I imagine it's similar to tarot in that you're like, what actually are you doing when you're channeling? You know, for me, my, the reason... I enjoy writing so much art is that flow state, you know, where three hours have passed and you're like, wait, was that 15 minutes? You know, it's you, you, you're gone. You're somewhere else for sure. Mm -hmm. So if that's channeling, you know, then, then I guess that's a form of channeling, but um, for sure, always when I'm writing, you know, things come to you and you're like, I have no, I have no idea where that came from. Um, which is, which is a great feeling. Yeah. yeah the strangest feeling sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, like, I guess this is pure imagination. And what is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where's it coming from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When we spoke with, um, Marion Peck, she said, um, oh. something to the effect of, uh, most artists won't admit it, but all art is channeling. Or something like right. That. Like, and I get that. I can see that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's wordplay a little bit. Like it's not, um, it's not maybe the technical definition of channeling or what Marie Condé meant when she said she was channeling to Juba. Like, I think that was a pretty concrete experience for her. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but, well, yeah. and that's similar a bit to what you guys do calling out the witch, right? Mm -hmm. And people who maybe don't call it, call that witchcraft is like mm. yeah okay. yeah that's interesting mm. I mean that's a it's a complicated thing I don't want to put that name on anybody sure um and cause them harm or put anybody in danger but I do want to make a a case for my own inspiration in, in the work that I do and say this inspires me in my what I call witchcraft you know these are ancestors I was looking for yeah sure I mean uh you always have to be careful. I think like if someone's like, is this person a witch or are you a witch? And I, this is a bit in the book. It's like, who, who's asking that question right. and what are, what are they, what are they actually asking, you know, right. when they ask that question? Um, because it can be like you asking that question is so widely different from Ron DeSantis asking that question. Right. You know, so right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, we have to protect each other a bit too, right? Mm -hmm, sure. Um, I see a wall of post-its. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> behind yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I love a post-it. <laughs> Me too. Is this a mapping of this story? Is it a next story? Is it just so, a, a lot of to-dos? <laughs> no, thank God it's not to-dos. Like we hide the to-dos because they've got a that would be that would so harsh that would harsh my vibe. Um, (laughs) this is like, there's a straight up timeline of her life just to keep it straight. Okay. And then, um, there are a ton of quotes from everyone from like, from Remedios to like Emerson to like my brother, (laughs) you know, just, and that's kind of something, you know, that's in the book of it too, is I really feel, you know, sometimes people say stuff to you that hits you so hard that it literally like transforms you in a, in a moment. And so there are a lot of those kind of transformational quotes up there for me. Um, I actually, yeah, I was just listening. I was just at the thing with um, Sylvia uh, Moreno Garcia and she, I love her books and she was talking about how she writes is she has a wall of post-its, but it's all, images that won't leave her alone and she doesn't know why and so she just covers the wall with post-its of these images and as she starts writing the she start they start coming down as they're going into the book which I was like oh super cool I wonder if I could do that but yeah there's just like a very straightforward timeline of her life just to keep everything straight and then a bunch of um a bunch of quotes how did you start to give yourself permission to write you know to like Mm -hmm. to live a life of a novelist to tell stories Mm -hmm. to slip all the way in how did how how did that happen for you yeah I mean I think um when I first started writing my first book Gilded Age which which is like a retelling of Edith one of Edith Wharton's very famous novels House of Merck which is like an outrageous thing to do right to take a master's story and like rip it off so I can't like the file was called just like big thing because I was so like freaked out about kind of what I was doing. And so I think in general, I've just like everything kind of just closed my eyes and, and, and left. I mean, if I thought really hard about, you know, presuming to write Remedius's story, I'm sure it would have stymied me. Um, But uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I think it's just kind of, yeah, closing, closing eyes and, and leaping and, you know, putting, as you know, there are tarot definitions in the, in the book that was super terrifying to write. Oh, really? Yeah. Super terrifying. Just because, you know, um, you're like, what's mine, what's not mine. Wh- where's this, where's this come from? This doesn't line up with like, traditional tarot thought um who's gonna come for me you know this sort of thing um so so yeah and again you just kind of have to take a deep breath and and do how did you learn how to do that (laughs) I don't how how did I learn how to do that I don't know I mean this is such a frustrating answer for a writer it's kind of just like you do it because because you have to you know there's so many writers who who say and I mean, it's obnoxious, but I think it's true. Like if there's anything else you could do, like you should go do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, because, because it, it, you are going to be facing that stuff for sure. Mm. And how does it work for you 
balancing or maybe how did it work when you were writing your first novel balancing uh well, let's put it let's, the the magical and the mundane you know like your your mundane life of a young writer a young poet I see Emily's here <laughs> wonderful yeah. poet um yeah. how do you balance that those those energies those dynamics when you're starting if you have to kind of cram writing into stolen hours and I don't know do you know what I yeah mean? totally I know exactly what you mean I mean so I uh my background was I was a lawyer I was a litigator for years and years and years I was miserable I hated it um and when you're a lawyer, you're doing like a very specific type of very rigid writing, like it's almost technical writing. And so um, my whole practice, and you know, I have an MFA in creative writing. So I was working with, I was still practicing law and I was getting this MFA. I was working with my professor and all my professors were just trying to loosen me up because, right. you know, I, I had spent all this time writing legal briefs. And so one of my um, professors actually said, you know, you just need to get sleepy and stupid when you're writing. And she's like, I want to encourage you to write first thing in the morning in bed. She's like, wake up, pee, write. And so I tried that and um, it, it was pretty useful. Was in, and Edith Wharton wrote in bed um, as well. She would write longhand and then she'd drop the pages on the floor and then her personal secretary would come in and gather them up and go type them in the other room for her, which is like, <laughs> okay. Privilege, yeah, but it, also, it was, yeah. It was like, okay, Edith. Like, yeah. All right. Um, so no, I was like, you know, my laptop hunched in the bed, right. Trying to write. And that really helped me. And so for me, I think, um, it's just prioritizing writing, writing for me first thing in the morning. I mean, my, my kids are older now, but when they were school-aged, it was kind of get the kids off and then go right to um, my desk uh, and make it the number one thing. And I can usually do like a three, a good day is like three, four hours. And then there's always a legal pad kind of next to me. And it has like the long ass list of everything that's coming into my head while I'm writing, like, what you have to make this appointment and you have to like whatever and it just so mm. it can it can all be dumped there mm. and then I feel like after those three four hours it's for me it's like you're coming up to the surface again you know you've been submerged in this world and um you have to come up to the surface and like deal with your life basically mm. um and you have like a list a guiding list <laughs> yeah I mean yeah. that's all that yeah that's for sure I think that's such wonderful advice. Um, I mean, so many pieces of that ring true for me, but especially that when I'm writing or or in like a creative mode, meditation is really hard for the way my brain works, mm -hmm. but I can um, do it if it's in between like research and writing, then sometimes I'll slip into meditation and in going back and forth between those two things. And I have to have an outlet for all of the tasks. Yeah. yeah or all the shit I remember. Or <laughs> else it's all just gonna loop. Like yeah. you have to be able to dump it. So you'd be like in two hours, like we will deal with this, whatever yeah. this is. But yeah. 
I and, promised you that's not going to get lost. It's like, it right, also right. reminds me of Leonora taking that bad feeling with the energy <laughs> yes. and like moving it and dropping it aside. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'll put that over here. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought that was perhaps maybe a very British way of dealing with things, mm. you know, like very compartmentalized or stereotypical British kind of. But yes, I like to sure. meditate after I've worked, after I've written, you know, like, I, I'm after, aware after yeah. yeah because before um then I'm off kind of right. like it's everything is just to get to the desk with the, the minimum amount of distraction delay or distraction yeah. and then what's that meditation like after is it like kind of coming back into grounding or mm-hmm. and I mean I, I don't know I'm like real med- meditators will be like that's not meditation or whatever but yeah. yeah I mean but again my Fuck yellow pad is w- yeah is with me because stuff will come to me in meditation you know that I want to maybe uh think about or include tomorrow or 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 I'm just looping the grocery list or whatever it is mm. so again so I can dump it onto paper and then and then you know let go of it mm. What's the, um, what's your feeling been like, or what's your experience been like in encountering the audience for your books? Mm. Um, well, it's interesting. So the first two books are so different from this Mm. book and the first two books are set in Cleveland. And again, they have to deal, do with, you know, feminine kind of the conundrum of femininity they do deal a lot with class um and it's interesting when I'm outside of Cleveland because they're set in Cleveland people say well Cleveland isn't this glamorous is it (laughs) like you gotta come to Cleveland man and then um in Cleveland everyone will be like wait who's who you know in your life encountering I mean this book isn't this book's not out yet until July but like just encountering kind of People around the tarot, I've had, um, you know, I've had a famous tarot reader reach out to me who got the book in ARC and uh, we Zoomed and I was just talking with her and we did a reading and, you know, so already I think people who love, uh, Remedi- there are definitely people who love Remedios who um, I hope are, you know, connected to the book and then people who I think have a tarot practice that's not a tarot practice that's I mean not about like the handsome dark-haired man will come into your life in a month which by the way that's legit like that's a great way to use the tarot too but just who are using it in a more um for for more self-exploration you know I really hope those people find the book as well Hmm. funny that you said that writing the interpretations of the cards was hard and scary mm-hmm. all I thought was like I need more like I want I want <laughs> the Claire McMillan guide to the chair <laughs> oh yeah man I'm up for it like that'd be amazing yeah, yeah yeah I mean I do like I think you get from my definitions I do like kind of a mm, psychologically informed kind of view of the cards I mean mm. Yeah. Yeah. We I read um a quote from your book in an episode of the Missing Witches RX, the 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 short prescription episodes. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because I love the way you describe early on in the book, in the voice of the woman who gives um, Remedios the deck, the the sort of like, um, one, I love the really practical, um, which, you know, like I do, <laughs> I, I love that voice of the, the none of this nonsense, which, mm-hmm. um, who's like, yeah, you, you were told that you weren't allowed to touch someone else's deck because you were a kid. Right. Yeah. Nanny's trying to like keep control of you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like you were told you can't buy your own deck because those are old mythologies keeping us away from our power like you there's no knowledge outside here aside from your own symbols and then the world of symbols and and you sort of dancing with your intuition between that um that's very much how I think about the tarot when I interact with it and a very liberating way to interact with it right like your your fingers sort of twitch when you see it especially pixie's deck I find I want to touch it I want to play with it yeah the number I've you know I don't read professionally that's not my calling but I read for friends sometimes and the number of people who who have never had a reading who see the cards and they're like these are the coolest most beautiful things I've ever seen Mm -hmm. um yeah every time it's super compelling Mm -hmm. but yeah a lot of that kind of very practical witch view came from my time with Rachel Pollack Mm -hmm. um you know I she she wrote, you know, 78 Degrees of Wisdom. I read that book and I love that book so much. And then I went and studied with her uh, for a week in Rhinebeck, New York at the Omega Institute. And she was very that way. She would kind of, um, she would talk about Lady Esmeralda. Like she'd be like, well, Lady Esmeralda won't let you touch her cards or Lady Esmeralda says this. So like, and that was kind of her caricature of, um some of those old mythologies around the tarot. Yeah. So she definitely had a very open, you know, view of using the cards for sure. Mm, Can you talk more about what she was like? It's so great that you got to spend that time with her. Yeah. She was super uh, inclusive. You know, I went, I'm a, you know, I'm a writer. So I go and she, she wrote novels as well too. So anyway, I go and there's probably like 60, 75 people there for a week to study the tarot. And like, I'm going to say like a good two thirds of them are professional readers, you know? Mm. So that was fascinating as a writer, just to be in a room of that many people who this is pretty much their livelihood, you know? Mm. Um, And they would start the, uh, they'd start a session every morning with a half hour of questions. So as a writer, I was super fascinated with all the professional tarot questions, which were like from like the most esoteric thing I'd never thought of to like dealing with billing. Like it was every, you know, it was like everything. It was so fascinating. And as a group, they were just the most chill, welcoming people. And, um, I kind of, I tell this story as an icebreaker. Uh, Mary Greer was there as well. So it was Mary Greer and Rachel Pollock teaching. And as an icebreaker, they um, would have you hold your deck and you face in a circle. And then there's a circle of people behind you uh, facing out. And they like rotated you like um, musical chairs. 
And then they say, stop. And you're to turn and offer your deck to the person and give them a one card reading. So of course they say, stop. I turn around and I'm paired with Rachel Pollock to give her a reading, right? Yeah. I'm like, what? No. And so, um, so she chooses a card. I can't remember what card she chose. And I completely froze. I panicked and she was so conscious. Like sometimes in a reading, when I'm a bit blocked, what I do is just describe the actions that are happening on the card, you know? So I know. So I just start like describing the card and that's how we got through it. And then as the week progressed, you know, um, I sat, you know, at her table for lunch a couple of times, like she knew I was a writer. We kind of talked about writing and um, yeah, it was fascinating. You know, Mary Greer was doing a lot on the history of the tarot, um, and then together they were just showing different ways of doing spreads. They did a whole afternoon on the court cards, which was super helpful. Um, they did a whole afternoon bringing in numerology. Um, yeah, it was just a really, I hate to say it, but it was just a really magical time um, to be with her and, and and learn from her. So. So yeah, it was great. Sometimes magical is just the right word. It's just the right word. (laughs) I know. I know. Sorry. Sorry, cynics. The world's full of magic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sorry about it. Um, Great. Are there any events that you're excited about that you're doing around the promotion of the book? What is book promo like for you? Or is it exciting? Are you, are you over it? Are you on to the next thing? <laughs> oh, like, I think I, I did start writing another book, but then, you know, launching a book into the world, it, you know, it takes a bit of energy and a bit of time. So I'm kind of in that mode, but I mean, aside, not to be cheesy, but aside from talking to you, I'm super excited because uh, the Art Institute in Chicago is actually having um, an exhibition of Vara's work. And so it opens on um, the 29th of July and I'll be there for the opening. Mm. Uh, they have like, I think it's over 20 pieces of her art that'll be there, which is amazing because I think there's only... I'll get it wrong, but I think it's around 180. There's only about 180 oil paintings. And then all in all, I think there's about three or 400 pieces of art because she died relatively young, you know, at 64. Yeah. So, but I, um, I went, my son actually goes to university of Chicago. So I'm in and out of Chicago a bit. So I actually, the curators were kind enough to meet with me and they showed me the PowerPoint of everything that was coming. And one of the coolest things that's coming, which I couldn't believe is um, some of her artifacts and ephemera is coming. So some of her crystals, some of her clothes um, that she sewed herself, like all, all these are coming for the exhibit as well as the paintings. So I'm just really, uh, that is something I'm thrilled, like just to be in a room with that much of her energy um, is something I'm really, really looking forward to. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was pouring over that link today because you had sent it to me back when we started talking, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out (laughs) how I could move my life around to be in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's up until November. So you've got some time. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh man, it's going to be so special. I mean, the her paintings, you know, people talk about the quality of the light in them and the, the incredible detail. I mean, she paints like a a master. She paints like a Renaissance master. They're they're so luminous. They're so I don't want to say perfect, but the detail is so incredible. And then and then the content, you know, where it's like looking at stories inside the weirder parts of my own mind or something. Mm-hmm. So it's so different to look at them on a screen than to be in a room with them. So I'm so excited for you that you get to go be surrounded by that. Mm, yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm excited to go to go see it. Um, yeah, and I think they have, I think the Chicago Art Institute has maybe two or three Carringtons that are on permanent display mm. too. And those those two, I mean, their work, both of their work, when you see it in person, it, I mean, it does literally glow like yes. it's alive. And even seeing, you know, seeing the reproductions, they're super cool because the stories they're telling are always super cool. But when you see the actual painting, they they are so alive and they do glow. It's it's amazing. And seeing it's always cool for me to see the difference in their work you know, because they're very much inspired and thinking about the same things, but Mm -hmm. the way they approach their work, you know, Carrington is much more free, I think, Mm -hmm. and um, Varro's, you know, so precise and controlled, the daughter of, you know, an engineer, and and she's super into science, you know, geology and quantum physics and all these things too, as was Carrington, but yeah. Did you have to negotiate even in your own mind or or practically with uh, an estate? I know you heard our conversation with the the family, the the, the Carrington family and estate. Mm-hmm. Um, was that a complexity for you at all? Or Mm-mm, no, because I didn't use. I don't think I quote. I don't think I directly quote them, so I didn't need permissions for that. I had to get from. I use one of Paré's poems um, in the text so I had to get permission for that and I used a a friend's poem for the epigraph so um, Mm -hmm. who gave me permission for that which was great (laughs) but yeah um, yeah did the getting the permission for the parade poem did you have to uh, tell them how you were going to describe him you know they know they were super generous about it I kind of just said you know I I I think I very generally outlined that like he recites it in a party scene right um and and yeah they were super generous they were like great lovely that's good to know yeah (laughs) um em i know you're here i you might be at work you might not be able to unmute but if you did um want to ask a question or say anything you're totally invited to claire if there was any things that you wanted to talk about or things I haven't touched on yet or anything no I just want to know like who's coming up next (laughs) who is the next missing witch like I can't wait to hear um and I've just enjoyed the podcast as I mentioned so much uh, especially the ones about Pixie Coleman Smith and Frida Harris and Sonia Hurston like they're all oh the one on Marjorie Cameron Holy fascinating so so yeah. fascinating yeah, yeah so I think we're sort of like you like we're in we have a new book coming out in September so we're in um 
Oh, I'm excited. We're gearing into that. And so um, actually the Marjorie Cameron and Lady Frida Harris are in that book. Oh, cool. um, in a different kind of context. So we, we write about the tools of magic. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's from an anti-capitalist perspective. So it's not like shit you have to buy, but shit that you already is already part of your power. Mm-hmm. And how Love people, that. people have used it and so those some of those stories are in we have a short list for the next Distinguished season but I don't want to say anybody who's on it <laughs> no it no changes I'm not, so much <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on the spot no not at all but that's so fascinating and I think yeah Lady Frida Harris is so fascinating um as well as I think I mentioned like this kind of famous uh reader reached out to me and she is she reads with a thought and I was so fascinated by that because, you know, Crowley has a lot of mythos around him. And because of that, it's hard for me to kind of get through that to mm. what he's talking about. You know, I kind of dismiss, <laughs> dismiss it a little bit. And the thought is beautiful. Um, but, you know, I didn't have any connection really with it. And she read So I was asking her, I was saying, you know, how it's such a like a masculine thing to me and um but no her take was pretty cool so oh that's so cool yeah Yeah. I'd love to know like I've I've tried to read with it and found it impossible for me right and I find I really relate to what Lady Frida said that it wasn't for her it wasn't meant to be a tool of divination but of like meditation on the orders of the universe and of like and so there's it's there's mathematical truths in there about the nature of time and each card should be a doorway into understanding I'm paraphrasing now but <laughs> but I I can yeah. see, I can engage with the deck in that way um but I find it really hard to well also because I find it very hard to read Aleister Crowley <laughs> like understand right. what the fuck I, he's talking I, about I feel the same way um <laughs> yeah so it's 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 really interesting and that's part two with with Marjorie Cameron and Jack Parsons right because right. he was like obsessed with Crowley and um and rockets you know it's like yeah. so du- it's so dude <laughs> so, it's so dude it's so dude yeah. so I I'm just so I kind of wrote it off as like this is like a dude thing but um but yeah so I'll but then be... what did those women do with it you know it's so right yeah and that's the same with Arthur Waite right and Pixie Coleman Smith like right. it's so interesting to me that they hired hired women to create yeah. the decks not not men you know not male painters it's it's is it there's something there that's for sure fascinating totally mm-hmm. yeah endlessly endlessly fascinating is that I mean I don't I don't want to put you on the spot either but I, are your next stories going in a similar direction of unpacking women's history yeah I mean I think I'm always you know writers like even when they try and get away from something <laughs> it's still coming through in their yeah. work you know so like the place of women and what women have have navigated and continue to navigate is, you know, I don't think I'm ever going to be done with that. And, um, but I was super sad to like leave the world of the tarot and the esoteric and everything. So, you know, I have a feeling that'll find its way into my work as, mm. as well. Mm. 
Um, yeah. in your research, I don't want to keep you too long. I could talk to you about this stuff. Dude, I can go all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Can you tell me stuff about Caddy Horna? I know she doesn't really appear in the book, I but I'm sure you found her in your research and I find yeah. her so cool too. Yeah, for sure. And that's another one that where I kind of made the editorial decision. She's there nominally, but I didn't really go into the friendship, but she was definitely you know, part of that trio. And um, yeah, I find her photographs endlessly fascinating and cool. And um, yeah. Yeah. I want to know so much more about her. She's someone that I've thought about doing for the the show or, or oh, something. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because I mean, the tricky thing with figuring out who to cover for the show is it's kind of like what we were talking about with how you really have to work to look for the women's stories, the men's stories encroach. It's very right. similar with white women. It's like you oh, really right, have to you really have to work to to, mm -hmm. to find the stories beyond the white women's stories. And it's like mm -hmm. there are there are many, many fascinating white women, and we have more, you know. Uh, archival evidence of their work and their magic but uh it also gets boring so and it's not, yeah. what we're it's not what we're trying to do is just have like a white lady podcast so. right 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 <laughs> that always ends up being in the balance for me I'll have a list of like 10 white women and be like I gotta get to work because that's not what I'm trying to do here right yeah no, but, but Caddy's high on my list for sure I mm -hmm. think it's so interesting the way they all came from the their their different experiences of trauma in the war mm -hmm. and their their spirit of resistance you know she was very much part of mm -hmm. that uh, anti-fascist movement that i think we we still we still need her her energy mm -hmm. her storytelling in our anti-fascist work so yeah for yeah, sure she's somebody i think about and i and i don't know anything about alice rayhan rayhan but she also was there and kind of friends with them as well. And yeah, um, the anti-fascist work, like that was no, that was not theoretical right. for them, you know, like that was no joke. Yeah. Um, because they lived through the times they lived through. Yeah. Um, you know, Remedios was in Barcelona and, you know, Franco is tear gassing the streets. And it, the day she finally decided to leave for Paris and in part meet Benjamin was also the day Lorca was assassinated, wow. you know? So she, for sure, I think had a visceral, real experience of, of what fascism is, you know? Yeah. Do you ever feel like part of the the storytelling that you want to do or I don't know is like related to your own ancestor stories like is that something that you draw on do you think about your oh, your, your mother or your grandmother or grandparents mm -hmm. lives does that play into it I'm not sure I have to think about that like yeah that's when I'm not really I'm not really sure about I have hmm. to ponder I think a lot yeah, about my grandparents sure. when I'm working. Funny. Um, so I always wonder, like, are you know, when you said that that these narratives recur for you, even if you try to shake mm. them, there's things that you're mm. going to be interested in always yeah. and they're going to appear in different shapes. 
Yeah. I wonder sure. why, 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 why are we haunted by those particular things? You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They're just things that, that hit you so deeply. You know, when you read, I mean, I'll go, when I, when you read Edith, right. If you read all her stuff, there are things that you're like, oh, you're still, that still come up that you're, you're like, I'm saying to Edith, you're still wrestling with this. You know, you're still coming, coming around on this. So it's weird that sense that they, they are still wrestling. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah everyone. They're still here. They're still wrestling. In, mm, yeah. In, in me engaging with them, they're still wrestling somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, that's why you get engage across time. You know, I've read somewhere some quote that said, like, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that like everyone who could teach you or be your friend is alive at the same time as you on the planet and geographically contiguous with you like it's got to be through time you know and that that again that's part of like listening to your podcast you're like yeah like these threads through time mm-hmm. yeah it this is sort of silly but true there's a moment in your book where you describe um Leonora and Remedios kind of meeting and recognizing each other like ah yes um, my friend is here. Like you're here. Yeah. <laughs> Did you read? Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say because I felt that in my life when you're just like when you meet someone for the first time and you're kind of like, oh, you're here now. Like, let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I know that mm-hmm. feeling deeply. There's a. I always think about in Tina Fey's autobiography. She describes the first time. Um, that Amy Poehler was in the writing room at SNL and uh, like Will Arnett or somebody made a joke and then um, Amy Poehler made like a pretty raunchy joke and then as a joke Will Arnett or whoever it was was like oh she's gross I don't like it and Amy Poehler deadpanned and was like I'm not fucking here to entertain you <laughs> and Tina Fey was like in my heart I jumped up and down screaming my my friend is here my friend is here <laughs> right totally it's the best feeling ever and that's when like that yeah it's the best feeling ever and it's also like when I believe I mean also like when you believe in the powers of the universe right yes. or, or whatever you want to call it where you're like the, there there's no way this is happening randomly you know, yeah. there's no way Amy Poehler is being put in that room with Tina Fey, like randomly. You right, know? right. Yeah. Or even just the the feeling of being so alive in that moment. Like it's mm-hmm. sometimes I have to be like physically knocked into feeling like awake and electric mm-hmm. in the present moment. And like, mm-hmm. that is one of the things that does it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it like, does. Oh, shit, you are real. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is real. This is happening. Let's go, yeah. as you say. <laughs> Better than espresso shots, for sure. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. wake you right up to like, I'm in the world right now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dear listeners, I hope when you're listening to this, you are grinning as much as we are. And I hope that you are feeling um, that moment of us bumping into your spiritual bodies, yelling, hi, I'm alive. You're alive. We're here. My friend is here. My friend is here. We love you so much. Thank you for being here. 
Um, Claire, can you tell the people how they can find you and support um, you and buy your glorious um, book and wrap yeah. themselves around it this summer? <laughs> well, that's so nice. Yeah, I have a website, clairemcmillan.com. Uh, I hang out on Instagram sometimes, um, Claire McMillan. <laughs> And the book's available wherever you like to buy your books. So, um, and if you are not in a place where you buy books, uh, personally requesting them at your library is fabulous for authors as well. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It makes such a difference. If you, mm -hmm. if you feel like you want to um, support uh your your new witchy best friend author Claire or, yes, or yeah authors in general the pre-order magic is magic and requesting at a library requesting it at your indie bookstore um it makes the all biggest the impact for us so yeah. all those things yeah, yeah. Well, this is a true delight in my day I loved chatting with you it was wonderful yeah, same we have to hang out more <laughs> I'm I'm coming to Montreal man let's do it I'll meet you uh, I'll meet you at the Remedios Varo I just have to find a way to get okay away. if you okay if you go <laughs> if you go I will go I will meet okay. you because okay. I'm looking for any excuse to go back I'm gonna go back multiple times I'm sure oh my gosh Chicago here we come mm -hmm. be great mm. all right thank you oh do you I this is a lot now but I, I love asking this question and if you have an answer um I know I would appreciate it as a writer do you do you have any kind of practice or ritual or hmm, magic words or mm -hmm. <laughs> um something that helps you do your work these days or or just be alive in these sometimes terrifying days yeah, I mean, I think uh, usually I'll, I have like a set of favorite novels that are always in my orbit. So uh, usually I get started like, okay, I'll just tell you guys. <laughs> when I was at the Mount in residence, um, the other there were two other writers in residence. And what we would do some days is we would go to one of the bookshelves that had all Edith's books on it and we'd close our eyes, but we'd choose a book and then we'd open it to a random page to see like, what did Edith have to say to us that day? And so sometimes I'll do that with a favorite, favorite novel, you know, I'll just open to a page and be like, what do you have to say to me today? Or also, you know, it, it just kind of gets my brain moving. Um, and that's usually, that's usually how I start, um, writing although I know I have friends who like candles or you know um Jane I don't know if you've ever read James Pressman's book The War of Art which is it's a super dude book but I enjoy that book a lot I mean it's called The War of Art like the entire thing's a war metaphor so it's like very male whatever yeah. you know mm -hmm. I'm making my um quotation marks but he in he has an entire invocation to the muse that he recites every time he sits down writing. So, you know, I do think that can be super helpful. The one thing I, I do, I like to write in a silent house. Like, as I mentioned, my kids are 
um, well, one's gone in college and one's in high school. So there, so I like a silent house, but still, even if I'm in a silent house, I close the door mm-hmm. um, to the room I write in. And that closing the door is kind of like, I don't know, being you're in your container then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's maybe the one real ritual piece I have um, mm. in terms of writing for sure. Thanks for that. Yeah. I will I will turn to my novels after this for guidance. <laughs> yeah, turn to your novels. I think I have um for sure I always have Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. Like mm-hmm. Virginia always has something to tell you to keep mm-hmm. going. So, yeah. So The Lighthouse is my favorite book. <laughs> oh, that's such an amazing book. Yeah. Yeah. All time, all time, all time mm-hmm. companion. Yeah, um, so yeah, maybe open it and see if it has something to tell you. Yes, yeah, although I don't know how I would put it down if I <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There is that. There is That's that. Okay, too though. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, Claire. Thanks for reaching thank you. out, and it's so so thrilling and wild to meet you and get to read your book and to know that we have somehow been in company together all this time. Such for a sure. gift. Yeah. It's just absolute pleasure. Thank you guys so much. It's so cool. Yeah. And blessed if I can be, I guess. Blessed be. <laughs> you must be a witch. If you want to support the Missing Witches Project, find out how at missingwitches.com and pre-order New Moon Magic, 13 Anti-Capitalist Tools for Resistance and Reenchantment by Risa Dickens and Amy Torek.